Saving Private Ryan. For those who haven't seen the film, Matt Damon's character is Private Ryan and Tom Hanks' character is the leader of the platoon that was sent to Europe during World War II to find Private Ryan and bring him home. Well, in the course of finding him, pretty much the entire platoon gets killed on that mission to save Ryan. And as the Hanks character is dying, I don't know, I hope you could hear it, but he tells Ryan to earn it. Earn it. Be worthy of the sacrifice. It's a powerful scene, and if you've seen the whole film, by the time you get to that point, it just resonates so deeply with our humanity. We want to be those persons who could live so nobly, so strongly as to be worthy of such deep sacrifice. But here's the thing. It's impossible. It's impossible. Think about it for a minute. And let's start with someone that we know and someone we love. Let's start with our mother or brother or friend. They die for us. How could we ever live consistently in such a way to earn that sacrifice? How could we? The best we could hope to do is maybe remain thankful for the rest of our lives, but that would probably ebb and flow, just like we're intending to do in our humanity. And perhaps we could make a few grand gestures of honorable living along the way, but can we really earn the sacrifice of the life of a loved one? More often than not, what happens in those situations is a terrible journey of dealing with survivor's guilt and all the mess that goes along with it. And that is if a loved one dies for us, or a loved one dies and we don't. Maybe they weren't even dying for us, they just died and we didn't. Now imagine a stranger dying for us. And not just any stranger, one stranger, but an entire platoon of strangers who died and left behind wives, kids, families, so we could live. How could we ever earn that? Impossible. And so instead of being this powerful and noble request, and I'm so, sorry for ruining a great film, but instead of being this powerful and noble request that inspires a life of grand achievement and honorable living, it is actually a deeply troubling burden. Here is Private Ryan as an old man.
I mean, ultimately, isn't that what Tom, the Tom Hanks character was offering Private Ryan? A hand in his own salvation, right? Live life accordingly, and you will have learned, Ryan, this great sacrifice that we all need to be. That's why so many Christians will quote this like it is gospel truth. God helps those who help themselves. I bet you quoted that. Maybe to your kids. <laughs> Maybe you had it for you when you were a kid. Here's the thing, it's not in the Bible. This is not in the Bible. Anywhere. I've read the Bible front to back a number of times in my life. I'm not bragging, I'm just not. It's not there. <laughs> this has its origins in two Greek sources. Again, a lot of modern Christianity has its origin in Greek sources, sadly. The Bible was written by Jews. Just one. First Greek origin, Sophocles, he said, No good ere comes to leisure purposeless, and heaven never helps the men who will not act. And Euripides, try first thyself, and after and after calling God. <laughs> and so the worker, God himself lends aid. And then, of course, Ben Franklin put it in Poor Rich's Almanac in the 1700s, and bam, took on a life of its own. In fact, many different polls, polls that are trying to show many different things, so uh, this is not an agenda thing, they were all trying to do different things, but this just happened to come up in these polls. The majority of people, even many who claim to be Christian, think this is a verse in the Bible. Most of them think it's one of the Ten Commandments. <laughs> <laughs> and as funny as it is, and as sad as it is, the worst part of it is, if you think and are honest with yourself about your own theology, I bet it's snuck right in. We're in an election year. I do not do politics at church. But think about some of the things you support politically. I bet this is one of the reasons you might support certain social policies or not. It's not Christian. It's not in the Bible. Now, there are a few verses in the Bible eschewing laziness and avoidance of work. Fine. But those in context are a far cry from the false theology of this claim. And so I think this is exactly why Jesus used such an incredible metaphor to help us understand the Christian journey when he was talking with Nicodemus, born again. See, no one earns their own physical birth. Right? It just happens. Did Lainey do anything? Sam Jill? No. Harvey, Rick? And no one earns their own spiritual work. To quote St. Paul, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Born again, it is an incredible metaphor. But I know it's a very loaded term. And so I hope that just as we did last week when we unpacked another loaded term, repent we will all find a deeper and necessary appreciation of this term by spending the rest of this morning talking about it and trying to unpack it. Now this is a term that over the years has been so misused, reduced, weighted down, with agenda and exclusivity, and misappropriated that many, many Christians no longer even think about it, much less embrace it as a conceptual understanding of the mystery of the Christian journey of transformation from unchristlikeness to Christlikeness. In fact, I will be honest, it is a term I myself shy away from now. 
given the way it is now mostly understood by Christians and non-Christians alike. Jesus used it to try to help Nicodemus understand the mystery of the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus used it to try to help Nicodemus understand the mystery of the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. And now, it is mostly a simple term of identity, as in born-again Christian. Which, interestingly enough, is almost, in some people's minds, it's its own branch of Christianity. I've heard people ask other people, I've heard Christians ask other people, oh, are you one of those born-again Christians? Like they're asking, are you Catholic? Are you, are you Baptist? Are you born-again? In fact, have you ever tried to explain to someone that doesn't know what non-denominationalism is, that you're a non-denominationalist? One of the first things they usually ask, oh, you were born again? They look at you like that ten heads. You're one of those. Sadly, as nothing but an identifying label, the underlying brilliance and truth of the mystery that Christ was talking about gets lost in translation, as it were. So sad. Likewise, it also gets weighted down with such exclusivity that it's almost become a term used by many to litmus test, if you will, if someone really is a Christian. That's how you litmus test them. Morning in. Oh, here now you're up. And as such, it's been reduced to this simple black and white singular mechanism of entry into the faith. Now, I understand this later reduction as Christ's words themselves lend to such an interpretation. He says, unless, unless. But see, born again is another way Jesus tries to explain the mystery of what God does for and in us. It is not a simple gate that is opened by a few correctly repeated words. Even though that's such an attractive idea to theology. Give us three steps, Stephen. <laughs> Give it to us. I was at Harvard listening to a lecture by Don Miller who wrote Blue Like Jazz, a book that introduced Christianity to a lot of people that never would have even thought about Christianity. And at the end, he opened it up to question and answers, and I was sitting there going, oh boy. You're at Harvard. Good luck with this, Don. And it was uh, an amazing 45 minutes to an hour of questions. And the place was packed. I mean, this was a peak of Blue Lake Jazz's popularity. And some will get up, and I could tell they were definitely, you know, probably, I won't say anything, but they were definitely Christian. And uh, I'll stop saying And, um, and then I could tell they were furious with some of the stuff Don Miller had said. And... He said, so Don, you're talking about God loves us, and God wants us to love him back, and then follow him. Well, how does that happen, Don? And I went, here it comes. This kid wants it, and he's not going to get it. And Don said, and he looked around the room, and he looked at two, a guy and a girl in the front door, and he goes, um, uh, I don't know. And he looked at the guy, and he said, how would you fall in love with her? Take her to dinner, spend time with her, 
get to know them. It was an amazing answer. And I was there cheering. And <laughs> yes. You see, when boredom again gets reduced into the simple mechanism of saying a few words, it's not the mystery that Jesus is talking about. His emphasis here on the unless, unless a man is born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. His emphasis is on the mystery that must take place. It has to take place. A mystery that God does in us. A mystery we cannot earn. His emphasis is not on the fact that these two words are magical in and of themselves. It's just another metaphor. And further, and further, another reduction of this term that is dangerous for all of us and this is what was really dangerous for me. Just as our birth into this world is from conception through to the birth, and then on through our life as we become ever more and more human in who we are, it's a journey. And the danger of reducing born again to a simple mechanism in one moment in time is what often stops us from moving more and more into the mystery of transformation. And transformation into Christ-likeness is what we are called to. It's the point of Christianity. Please don't reduce that. I know it would be awesome if Christianity's point was not to become like Christ. Wouldn't it? Then just think how we could live. We could rationalize our hate, our disgust with our loved ones. There is so much we could rationalize if Christianity's point was just our gateway mechanism instead of becoming like Jesus Christ. See, consider his audience. Nicodemus, a religious leader. By the way, that's a far different audience than we tend to share the gospel with, isn't it? This was a religious leader, a man of great knowledge and understanding of Scripture. And please do not diminish the truth behind this amazing encounter by understanding this as a Jewish Christian question. That's a far too easy way to read the Gospels. He's considering Jesus himself was a Jew. What we have here is a man who is convinced, convinced he has lived in a way that he has earned, is worthy of God's love, of God's salvation, of God's working in his life. Nicodemus was probably one of the most moral and ethical and obedient persons we meet in all of Scripture. And yet, to this man, Jesus said, you must be born again. <coughs> it may have tremendous value to us to think about why Jesus had this particular conversation with Nicodemus and not with the many far messier folks he engaged with along the way. I've thought about that a lot over the decades of my life. Why did Jesus have this conversation with Nicodemus? And the deep conviction that settled over me some 20 years ago, right as I was coming out of my 20s and I knew everything. I had been a missionary and I was poster child for fundamental evangelical Christianity and my life was good. You couldn't find anything wrong with my life. And that's when the Holy Spirit made me realize, hey David, Jesus shows up right now like he did to Nicodemus. He's going to tell you one thing. You need to be born.
one again. And I was like, oh, you want more again? More again. Six years old. You'll remember the day I sat on my back porch. No, David, he's going to tell you you need to be born again. You can't. I know the whole Bible. I've been to India. I've worked with lepers. I've taught all over Australia. I'm born again. David, Jesus is going to tell you you need to be born again. Because deep inside, there's nothing about you that looks like Jesus Christ. Nothing. You know, a lot of people get frustrated because I keep talking about grace and grace and grace and grace and grace and grace and grace. Because grace is the only thing that saves. It's the only thing that transforms. I've been down the other road. I'm a very disciplined person. Changing your outward behavior is not being born again. You have to meet Jesus. You have to know His grace and His love. Isn't that the witness of the Bible? Saw that picture of communion today. Saw. Anyone should have been punished and judged and condemned, Saul. And he met Jesus, and Jesus just loved him. Love changes lives. Grace changes lives. You can look all sparkly clean on the outside, Nicodemus did. And Jesus said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. But see, here's the thing. He was giving Nicodemus good news. And I am so thankful for uh, for my own little Damascus road over the years. That reminds me it's about being born again. He was saying to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you can't earn it. But that's okay, you don't have to. I spent the majority of my life after being born again trying to earn it. Trying to be worthy of it and telling other people they should too. And I wonder sometimes how many people I scared away from the gospel. How many Christians I pushed off the road because I wanted them to be someone they weren't. I wanted them to be like me. <laughs> and then I found out. Whoa. Last week when we unpacked repentance, we saw how a part of that process is what God does. God gives us a new mind. That is the beginning of this underlying mystery that Christ is illuminating for us in this beautiful metaphor of being born again. We change the way we think. God gives us a new mind, and then he gives us a whole new life. This is nothing less than quantum genetics, Christ is It is, I think, the answer to the question we have been exploring in this current series. How do we live like Christ? By being born again. And again, and again. It's a metaphor, a beautiful, powerful metaphor for how our genes must be replaced by Christ more and more and more as we journey ever deeper into relationship with Him. It is the divine in us slowly but surely taking over the rebellious human in us. That's why we need to preach the gospel to each other all the time. The gospel is not for sinners. It's for everybody, because we're all sinners. If anyone here is living a perfect divine life, let me know. You can be the pastor of Canaan Community And if you're not, then guess what? You need to be born again. I need to be born again. That's the beauty of this metaphor.
don't sell it short. We'll never sell anything short that Jesus said. Right now, just think of the one person that you don't like right now. always talking about how his death would become the actual life of others. Right? Colossians 1, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you. There is a glorious mystery as to how God saves us and transforms us. Christ in us. God is saving us from the inside out, not the outside in. Christ in us allows us to live like Christ. It is his genes that are striving to take over. When we let them, those moments of wonderful, this is a very Christian term, but it's a good one, victorious living, are because Christ in us has taken over. It's not because we're strong or we're earning it. He's in us taking over. When we let his genes take over, when we let his mind in us have control, we move deeper and deeper into this wonderful, glorious mystery of being born again. Notice Paul says to the Corinthians in his second letter, therefore, if anyone, is in, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Sure, there's that smell of the old that still lingers and deep corners that need to be cleaned out. The new has come. The new has come in, in its first letter, which we spent years on. We have the mind of Christ. We have it. This is the thing. Everyone right here. We have the mind of Christ. That's just seeking to speak to our deepest need. Is it sadness this morning? The mind of Christ speaks to that. Is it shame or disgust for something we've done? the mind of Christ speak to that. Is a hard heart, lack of forgiveness? Let the mind of Christ speak to that. It's in us. And then he sums it up this way, which is one of the great verses in all of Scripture. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. It's not so much that Christ gives us life, it's that Christ is our like we talked about last week, Christian living is not behavior modification. It's total transformation. See, behavior modification, or the term we're using this week, earn it, earn it, suggests we lack something, and by hard work we can make up for it. Nope. We do not lack anything. God has given us everything for a new life. Everything is in us. I know it seems far, far away at times. But it's in us. It's about letting it bubble up. It's about surrendering to it. It is finished. It is in us. Christ's life is in us. We need to allow it to take over. We need to be all of us in the most practical sense. We are called to live the divine life. We are called to live lives of love. Pure and Christ-like love. 
love that is decidedly not part of our human gene pool, but it is part of the human, of the divine gene pool. And because of the death and resurrection of Christ, that can be ours. Living the divine life is possible because the divine lives in us. Thanks be 